こんにちは。レジデンスについて、ポッドキャスト、ホームエイジカンバーセーションズへようこそ。私はミューです。そして、日本語がわかりません。And I'm Mole, and I personally wrecked the residence financially, and I have no regrets about it. And I'm Rabbit, and where did my eyeball go? I'm Cat, and they found me in the same dumpster they found Mr. Red. Our project for today is the 13th Anniversary Show. The 13th Anniversary Show came about in October of 1985 and went on until January of 1987. It came after the total financial havoc wrought by the Mole Show, <laughs> which left the residents in crippling debt, leading them to promise that they would never tour again. Except when their Japanese label asked them to come and perform for the anniversary of the label in Japan, the residents decided to change their tune. But first, let's talk a bit about the residents in Japan. Take it away, Mew! Ooh, alright.、Um, so, everyone knows the residents are practically Japanese,、uh, but no one knows.、Um, well, I mean, who's to say they're not? I mean, no one knows. But,、uh, who's this no one? Yeah, I'm not talking about it. But I've heard they're also from like, Louisiana.、Um, ah, so who's Louisiana, really, Japan.、Um, Louisiana is、uh, true. Yeah, that's one of the lesser known.、Uh, <laughs> Sort of having a Japanese fan base outside of that satisfaction record, which was kind of not exactly, <laughs> wasn't exactly,、uh, I feel, targeted to Japanese people,、um, was during that whole disappearing residence fiasco prior to the release of Eskimo.、Uh, this was when the residents like fled. Um, prior well, to the release of Eskimo, and Cryptic had to like, chase them down. They put out Not Available because there was nothing else to put out. They gave them a new studio, and apparently, at one point, the resident went to Japan、um, as part of the story.、Um, that entire story kind of seems, you know, it's just part of the resident's mythology. So it's hard to say how 100% true that is, but it kind of makes sense because. You know, the residents did have this deal with their Japanese label, so、um, even if the residents didn't go to Japan, like right during that whole made up controversy,、um, it could have been based on real events of them actually going to Japan, or Cryptic going to Japan, or both.、Um, speaking of their Japanese label, their Japanese label was a, called. Wave.、Um, Wave、uh, was a label and a record store.、Um, it was a label for the record store, I guess.、Um, and that record store was part of a bigger conglomerate、um, of the Seibu department stores, which are big department stores.、Uh, Wave specialized in what else? New wave music, although they also put out other music, jazz.、Um, they put out a lot of foreign 
to Japan anyways, artists like The Residents. Um, and they also put out like some familiar names if you're a fan of The Residents. John Zorn, uh, Tuxedo Moon. They put out a lot of like weird, well, I guess not weird. <laughs> they put out a lot of classic jazz albums. They put out some Thelonious Monk. Um, I think it's interesting that um, Tuxedo Moon was on Wave because Tuxedo Moon would later be hosted on Ralph Records. Yeah, so there, there was. A, I feel like there's a lot of overlap. Um, there is a lot of. There, there were Japanese artists on Wave who were just putting out Japanese records, but there was a lot of foreign stuff, um, especially that sort of like classic jazz. That was a big part of Wave's output, uh, but also some of. Uh, some familiar names, the residents. Um, shout out to all my Verna Lint stands out there. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, and Wave put out uh, the residents albums, um, including the big ones that were in Japan, uh, George and James, which was pretty successful, and Big Bubble, which was hugely successful in Japan. Um, Which is interesting because in the Western markets, like people yeah. really hate those two albums specifically. Yeah, like like the only two like legit like Ralph Records um, put out uh, like used LPs I have from the residents are George and James and Big Bubble because like nobody wants them, so it was very easy to find them at my local record store. But like those were super popular in Japan, especially Big Bubble. It was a unusual success Japanese have taste it, it, it okay. is <laughs> I think because there there was kind of a language barrier like I feel like Big Bubble is kind of a controversial album um, amongst Resident fans uh, because of the whole presentation what, <laughs> but especially it, it sort of it sort of works because it's like you know it's like the English speakers they they always could read the lyrics so they're kind of used to that sort of thing, and then you have the big bubble which is for the first time to English speakers like, whoa I can't understand what he's saying. In yeah, Japan, it's inaccessible in a way to English speakers, but if you don't speak English, it doesn't matter if they're not speaking English on the album. But I think it also reflects a shift in attitudes about music. Um, in a regional sense, because experimental music in the in the United States, really at any point in time, differs wildly from the kind of experimental music happening in Europe or in Japan, and you see this as sort of a sliding scale here, because there's a core set of albums that U.S. fans of the residents seem to really enjoy, and then there's sort of the European reception of the residents, which seems to be with more open arms, and then you get the Japanese reception of the residents, which seems to be even more ahead of the curve and more receptive to the sort of experimental direction the residents take, really at any point in time, but especially in the 1980s. I mean, yeah. it, could, it could be just like, I guess, a, I don't know, a cultural thing too, because Twin Peaks was also super, super, super crazy popular in Japan. Like, to the point where there's, like, Twin Peaks coffee commercials in Japan. Like, Kyle McLaughlin, like, drink this coffee. Uh, or whatever. So maybe it's just, yeah, like, I, a cultural attraction to that kind of surrealism that the residents yeah, of Twin Peaks both provide. Like, like, we, like, in the America 
we have like this association that Japan's really weird and wacky, and I mean they are, but there's also this just other like sort of artistic appreciation for the surreal. Like if you see a lot、yes. of like Japanese surrealist works, like I love Japanese surrealist works. Um, and they're, even they're their just, horror is more surreal than like, yes, non-tangible than anything、uh, else. Like Junji Ito specifically comes、um, to mind. Yeah. So I think that like the residents kind of appeals to that kind of palette, and that sort of just avant-garde new wave sound just of the big bubble came out at like the perfect time to be hugely successful.、Um, wave also put out a kind of exclusive record because I don't think. I don't think it's been re-released. I like actually know it hasn't been re-released.、Uh, it's called Memorial Hits.、Um, it's a just it's a compilation album、uh, that was to sort of prepare for the 13th anniversary show, get people familiar with the residents a bit more. Which was、um, at the time known as the Eyeball Show, right? Yes, yes, it was the the Eyeball Show,、um, and.、Uh, Like I know, Memorial Hits and the Big Bubble, they came with these hand transcribed like lyric sheets. Like someone, like listened to the album and would transcribe the lyrics. Which for the Big Bubble, like I can't do that in English. I don't know how they managed to do that in Japanese.、Um, and for Memorial Hits, I also don't know because I I don't really know what's on that album. <laughs> But like. It is a goal of mine to eventually get those releases so I can read the lyric sheets because I'm so curious, especially about the big bubble. Like, you know, I don't even like, I don't even know the lyrics to the big bubble. So like, seeing such a unique perspective, like trying to interpret it, is like so cool.、Um, yeah, I mean, Wave as a label seemed to be. Really kind to the residents, and that kindness was probably very much appreciated following the Mole Show because the financial situation that followed that was probably one of the worst the residents have ever been in.、Yeah. But because the like because the Wave releases did so well in Japan, it was like there was nowhere else to go for them. But to Japan, so when the label asks them to come and perform, it's like, what are you gonna do? You're gonna go to Japan. Yeah. So apparently, Wave was like, "Hey, you should come perform in Japan," and they're just like, "No, we're never touring again." And Wave was like, "We will pay all of the expenses." And then well, at that point, provide, it's just like, "Well, <laughs> provide instruments, like, provide shelter, yeah, yeah. all that, all everything." Apparently, I think. I think they also paid them on top of that. Yeah. Like, plus, like I guess you know, I assume they make money from the shows too, and then they just also got like a, a bonus from Wave. So Wave was just throwing money at them,、um, which like. At the time, it was it was like, it was like a blessing because you know they they were basically about to fall apart as a band because of what the Mole Show did. Like, because one thing was like the mole show was also just really stressful because it was really big, theatrical,、uh, and just a headache. They had like all the staff on on、so、the show, co- like so many changes of <sighs> set, and it was impossible to transport. And so, with the thirteenth anniversary show, they decided like. 
to go in the complete opposite direction and have an entirely minimalist show that was focused almost entirely on costumes and was lit by a pair of handheld lights. And compared to the Mole Show, that was a total shift. There are lighting sheets that they had for the specific theatrical lighting that they needed for the shows on that tour, while with the 13th anniversary show, it's a lot more freeform. But it seems like they didn't lose anything in terms of mood because the 13th anniversary yeah. show turned out to be just as dark, if not more. Um, yeah, like, we'll, we'll eventually go into more detail on, on the just adventure the residents had with, with the mole show, but it was just insane and just uh, like being offered like to to have it all covered and everything like they couldn't turn it down even if they were still stressed out I guess from performing live um, also just a little bit of trivia about Wave and like their love for the residents I don't know if this is true or not but I've seen the, the residents official website claimed this so it's just one of those weird mythical mysteries. Apparently, Wave Records had a statue of the residents made That's... and installed in their office in Tokyo. Um, it's like a bronze statue, and like Please, what? There, there are no pictures of it. There's no pictures of it. I don't know if it's like if it if it still exists. Like how or big it was it? Existed. Like was it like life size? Was it just like a little tiny little like? Well, here's the thing, scale. I want it in my house to have and to <laughs> like, hold and to love and to snuggle. Like, I, I don't know if it exists. It was on the official website, so like, it, but it also, like, the resident's history is so filled with mystery. No rhyme. rhyme. Um, like, but why would they make that up? Exactly, it's like so weird. Such a weird detail. I love this about like, I mean, just the whole 13th anniversary saga is very mysterious to me. But like the residents and their situation and adventures and business in Japan is so fascinating to me because there's so many weird mysteries that like, um, just like Cryptic or Ralph Staff like just wouldn't know because like they're not in japan they weren't constantly monitoring wave records so it's like hazy on the details it's like the the actual like telling of that story is so glazed over that it's so it's almost by like the way. They, they wouldn't even like make that up because it's not part of the story that they're telling <laughs> i don't know i don't know but clearly it shows, whether it's true or not, and the fact that we can believe it, that Wave as a label was showing the real dedication to the residents that they needed at the time. So, the Eyeball Show was born, and the residents apparently played four shows in Japan. Uh, so, they played one in uh, a venue in Kyoto called Kyoto Sokal, um, which I had to go digging for that because it's not on... To the official website um, and then the uh, three remaining shows were in the Parko space in Shibuya Tokyo, Japan um, so obviously that show was more of a normal concert 
um, compared to the theatrical and therefore more expensive and stressful mole show. Normal, relatively speaking. I mean, this is the residence. Yeah. In here we're talking like there's a singer, there's someone playing instruments, and Snake Finger is also there. You know, just the set hanging list, out, I guess. Um, the set list is just like, here are songs by the residents rather than them being like, you know what, we're going to tell a story. We're going to have theatrics and the narrator. It's like, no, it's just, just a... A fun old, weird old time. And these shows were pretty successful. And with that, the residents decided to take the 13th anniversary show back to the States. This was all made possible, of course, by some strange 18-year-old named Rich Shoop, who was later called the Wonder Boy by the residents. He arranged for the incredible numbers of show, the incredible number of shows all across the United States, and this was during during the 13th anniversary show. They visited some locations that they have not gone back to since, which also meant that they played some pool halls and other sorts of shady venues. They went to Kansas. They went to Kansas. I mean, 18-year-old, you know, scheduling an entire nationwide tour you know he there, tried his there was, he lives quite, up to his name there, there was quite the uh, the set of little things that have been written about too that happened in some of those shows like the keyboard overheating and um, there there was also I think one time when they had to when someone ran up on the stage and then yeah that, it was just absolute pandemonium it sounds there, like a uh, Typical American <laughs> resident audience. There, there is, there's one big one that we'll get to in a moment, though. Ooh, one, yes. one big problem. So, after they did the United States tour, uh, or should I talk about the? Well, well, here during the United States side of the tour, there was an eyeball theft. <gasps> one of the greatest Saying crimes so. in residential history. Oh, I in, will say it is. So. No, no, no. I, I wouldn't even. I would go so far as to say American history. The greatest crime in American history. I would say this eyeball theft... The most theft heinous of, crime in American history. Over the 13th anniversary tour is probably the second worst crime in American history. The first one being the eyeball theft of, what was it, 2014, 2015? Like the yes. one that happened this decade. That was 2012. Yeah. That like never Mr. got... Mr. Blue, if you're out there, we just want you home. Hashtag free Mr. Blue. Bring him home. Bring him bring home. Our, bring so, our boy home. Bring our boys back. Um, <laughs> so after the Los Angeles show, it turned out that someone had stolen Mr. Red from the residence dressing room. And this was completely unacceptable. And they, and they uh, threw him out of a window into a dumpster. But of course, after the eyeball was returned, the residents knew it would never be the same. It had been tainted by being touched in unknown ways by someone who was not its owner because each eyeball was made to fit its wearer and absolutely no one else. So the residents, crafty as always, brought a new character into play, Mr. Skull. Mr. Skull. He had a black skull for a head. And we all know him now, but at the time, the residents also introduced a black armband worn by the group during the shows and was also sold at merch tables in memorial 
of the stolen eyeball. Yeah, they had the the dates of it. Brings me to tea. And after that, after that United States side of the tour, the residents decided to take on Australia, New Zealand, and then go all across Europe. Of course, for one of their first shows in Europe, they played in Tromso, Norway. The issue here was that almost all of their equipment did not arrive in time for the show, so they had to scramble to get new costumes, instruments, and more at the very last minute. So they weren't getting things from, like, a toy store. But they pulled through, and in true residential fashion, the show was almost as memorable, or even more memorable, perhaps due to their perseverance. And also during the European side of the tour, this is where they first encountered the professor himself, Hein Fokker, who was truly captured by the sights and sounds and is now their tour manager and has been for God only knows how many years. Okay. And he is a very small lad. Um, you're six feet tall. You would not know. He's a normal height. How tall is he? I, I don't know. I think... I'd, I'd say about 5'7". Wait, what do you think I said? I said swell. <laughs> oh, I thought you said small. Oh, <laughs> Hashtag yeah. manlet squad. Oh yeah, he's a very <laughs> swell lad is what I said. Sorry, uh, Sparky, cut out my spurking. I will not. I'd like to interject with a side note. So, mo most people know Mr. Skull as the singer of uh, The Residence after the 13th anniversary show, but in this case, he was ah. not the singer. He was actually the keyboard player. Oh yeah, he and was just like on the sidelines because they had a special mystery guest who was doing a lot of singing. Oh yeah, well, like uh, on Spot Spotify's version of the, uh, the, the, the 13th anniversary tour is actually the American concert. And, you know, in the introduction, they say that one of our, our, our guys, our special friends, having a major crisis of, you guys know the thing, they're like, oh, it's like a major crisis of identity. So, maybe he's still figuring himself out, because they have him on keyboards. Don't really know what they're going to do with him yet. He he's multi-talented. He, he he's multi also... Oh, yes, for sure. But he just, he, he didn't, hadn't find his, hadn't found his niche quite He yet. hadn't found his voice. Yeah, there you have it. Boom. Because he That's was a school. That's why yes. the singing resident's voice changed so much. We solved That's, it. We solved the mystery. That's why Santa Dog sounds so different. Just call he, he us also, uh, uh, meddling kids because we solved this motherfucking mystery. God he, damn it! He was also not called Mr. Skull back then, if I recall correctly. He was called uh, Mr. Dead uh, Eye Dick, which is actually Dead a Kurvonnegut reference. So the format of the show, like I said, had to do with both of the albums. So the part one was uh, Duck Stab and Buster and Glenn. Then they went into 1984 era and uh, Mr. The One, the only, a man, the myth, the legend, Snake Finger, and a salute. Philip Goddamn Lithman. Then they went on to the early days of uh, 1970 through 1977. Followed by American composers, and then we've got our intermission uh, for for Elsie. For Elsie, yeah. I was like, wait, I was worried it's gonna mispronounce that. <laughs> I um, I love love for Elsie. By the way, it's 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 fun to listen. Yes. Yeah, it's it is a, it's really stellar. Then we go into Walter Westinghouse, and then the commercial album, which is probably why one of my favorite of these. I have ADHD, so it's easy for me to listen to. 
And then the big bubble. So a lot of these were accompanied by costume changes. Uh, we've had, you know, the eyeballs and then uh, Nixon mask with a checkered suit and bow tie. I would have really, loved really to see like that. I really like their Nixon. I like, well, it's, it their Nixon's better than the real one. But, uh, so you got our, our Richard Nixon, we've got our eyeballs, um, then we've got the costume of the lead singer of the Bib Big Bubble, Ramsey. We've got our inflatable skeleton, so, you know, average stuff, average costumes, your typical run-of-the-mill dress-up. Regular stuff. Regular oh, wait, stuff. oh, wait, I got it, I got it. Um, so, the mask itself was just a standard, it actually was not a Richard Nixon mask as commonly thought. It was a old old man mask it was just uh who, who's ben cooper does anybody here know who ben cooper is i feel like i should yeah i'm gonna you. google it real quick google ben cooper ben cooper uh the residents are uh, fans of old man masks though yeah um yeah I don't know how much of this eBay listing is fact, but it sure is not Richard Nixon. But, you know, hey, it, it could be. Um, also, there was a bald version of this mask. But they didn't use it. Just thought you all uh, should know that. There's something about the 13th anniversary show that sounds, like, weirdly intense to me, even though it's supposed to be more relaxed compared to the Mole show. It's just, like... The sound of the synths, like it's it's very kind of spooky and ethereal, um, in 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 its quality. I love it. I love it. There's an intensity to it, a kind of desperation that only comes from being in dire financial straits. I just want to say, Walter Westinghouse, uh, that version is very good because it has Snake Fingers singing in a uh, Southern accent, which. You haven't heard that yet. You're not you're not truly living yet. Also they play um they play some some interesting songs uh during this show, depending on the set list of course, but you know, they should play like Ships Are Going Down from Non Available, which hearing a non available song live is pretty rare and I really like that cover version of Ships Are Going Down. It's very somber and sad. Um, they play, uh, what's that song? Eloise? Yeah, Eloise from the Vileness Fat soundtrack. Which is very unusual. And also that song is very intense. <laughs> um, they even play some Snake Finger songs. They play, uh, um... Yes, Eva's warning. They played uh, also "Picnic in the Jungle." There you go. <laughs> Both of those I really like on the 13th anniversary. Oh, actually, side note: uh, I think for one of the San Francisco shows, uh, they had Penn and Tyler were kind of, like both of them this time come on stage for uh, Eva's warning because I think Penn did a little rant, and I think Tyler actually. <laughs> that sounds about <laughs> accurate. He actually uh, Tyler actually sang one of the verses. Tyler spoke. Yeah. Weird. 
No, well, I, don't I mean, like we all know Teller, feels, Teller is a that resident. Feels, that feels fake. Well, you know mm-hmm. what? I'm a resident too, so whatever. Well, no, no the, we the reason why Teller. Resident. The, the reason why Teller doesn't speak is because people would be able to recognize him as the singer for the residents. Oh, shit! We aren't supposed to know that. Sorry, uh, cut that out. That was That's classified information. I, I'm a, I apologize for leaking that. Sparky, you don't know what they'll do to us if we let that information out. Please cut it out. Um, I, I love the version of Man's World. Uh, yeah, that Man's World cover ooh. is so iconic and intense. I mean, it... Even compared to, like, the studio version of that, like, the type of performance that Singing Resident gives there is, like, an intensity of emotion that really... I I don't know. It would come to be a mark of later Resident's releases just as, like, that, that kind of power that goes into that. You don't really... You don't really find as easily in the works that preceded the 13th anniversary show. But then you also hear it in his vocal style later on, that, that like, screaming, really. But it's good screaming. I, I would say, like, a lot of people describe um, the Resident's discography as sort of, like, complex mi- minimalism. I feel like the 13th anniversary show, because it is constrained as a live show, um really demonstrates that sort of minimalism but it's so like haunting and powerful at the same time like man's world is is their version of it's pretty simple um and the live version's kind of even more simple but at the same time there's so much energy put into it there's so much tension put into it speaking of tension cry for the fire You just don't find performances like that anywhere else. You certainly don't. Like, I, would <laughs> s- I would say, like, discovering that footage of them performing live, uh, Cry for the Fire live, um, is like a, it's, it's like a pivotal moment for a, for a Resonance fan in, in this day and age, because it's just so intense, um, like, we, we think of the residents as, as these masked, anonymous people, and suddenly there's this very emotional song with this man on stage screaming, and you can see his face. You can just see his face, but at the same time, it's like, you can't? <laughs> like yeah, you can't. it's like, it's sort of that really good kind of acting where... The actor is so deeply submerged in a character that the character is really all you can see. Um, exactly. And I think that is a pretty good way of describing how the residents preserve their anonymity. Oh yeah, no, for sure, because a lot of the costumes don't leave much to the imagination, especially later on. I'd say. Uh, which co- yeah, mm-hmm. I could definitely say that about Randy. <laughs> Am I right, guys? Who's with me? Randy got Who's down to the muscles. 13th anniversary show, very good. But it also has connections to later residence works. Um, say because, what? Yeah, in terms of format, this would end up being 
kind of what they go for anytime they're not doing a really storytelling driven performance or a performance driven by a certain album. So while this kind of fell to the wayside in the 90s because everything was pretty focused on storytelling, even through Demons Dance Alone live, um, you can kind of see it with the Icky Flicks live show, um, Randy, Chuck, and Bob. And of course, with the Way We Were tour in Australia, Way We Were was essentially the 20th anniversary of the 13th anniversary tour, and its setlist was very similar with newer songs added in, but replicated in a way the feel of 13th anniversary, only now the residents had money. So that was, I think that was kind of cool. It's a lot, it's, it's still got that really freaky atmosphere, because it's like, it's almost, you know, in the 80s a lot, it was easier to be scared than it was in the 2000s. So, it was kind of amplified in the way we were, because now the way we were is terrifying. They are streaming a lot. <laughs> the, the way we yeah. were is very interesting, just because it's, it was a, a lot smaller tour, just Australia. Um, so yeah. I don't know. There's something about like just the the limited availability of that, Intimacy. where it's like, yeah, yeah, it feels different than 13th anniversary, which has like a billion releases. It's Tokyo, America, Holland, everything. They um, they still had that minimalism though, because it's like from what I've seen in the video, the sets were essentially like hung up sheets with lights behind them and an aluminum ladder that they basically yeah. shaped around the, throughout the songs. Pretty interesting. So that, yeah, Way We Were was pretty cool. Um, do we want to talk about other Japanese labels? Sure. Uh, so Wave eventually uh, went defunct. Um, rest in peace. Um, but the residents uh, still have fans in Japan uh, who are willing to buy CDs or records or whatever. So uh, there are other labels that exist that distribute uh, the residents' stuff now. Um, although, to be fair, like now that we're in 2019 with internets and the uh, uh, internets, <laughs> um, you know the need to have like special like record label in japan taking care of things isn't that crucial anymore people can just import but uh there, there are at least two labels i know of there's uh birdsong which puts out they put out those little tiny like mini lps you know what i'm talking about those little cds that are like mini versions of the lp sleeves and then you know what i'm talking about no. They're really oh, cute. Oh my god. Uh, they're, they're these little CDs. They're really cute. They're J Japan exclusives. Oh. And it's like little CD sleeves that are like designed to be like mini versions of like the uh, like vinyl sleeves. And then when you take the CD out, it's like uh, like a reproduction of the like label that would be on the, uh, you know, the Record. LP. Yeah. That is uh, so really cute. darn cute. They're really cute. That's Maybe adorable. Wait, so I, I so have. So the CD just slides in and out of it. Yeah, it's just like one of those like tiny little CD sleeves. It's not like a digipack or whatever. Oh, oh yeah. My, a friend of mine was telling me that they overheard this guy saying like women love tiny things, like miniature versions of things, and I, I think 
uh, Mew gushing over this is proof positive <laughs> they're, that they're they're really cute. I have a I have the intermission one. The other thing they have, you know, like the their little record sleeve in an LP. Like it has a little like paper sleeve around the CD, which is like oh, like the OB? unnecessary. Well, no, it's like a little uh, what is it the liner the the liner thing. Mm. Um, they have yeah, they have one for the CD, which obviously is pointless. Oh, that's so cute. Like most oh. CDs in that format don't have. I, I should like it's, upload it's kinda, pictures. Is it is it kind of like really the, the the preserved editions? How they have those little inner sleeves. Uh, no, it's like an actual, like, you know, like, the, the, the record sleeve that you put the record in and yeah, then you put it in the Yeah, I know they have, like, the little, I guess the more cardboarded. The, well, the, 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 sorry, the, the dust jacket thing. There you go, that's what it's called. Yeah, it's like, there's, like, a tiny version of that that goes <laughs> around so the CD that's really cute. cute. And they, they also do have, like, an OB and, like, a little booklet they jam in there, too. Uh, very good. I would, I think you can still buy them. They're kind of cheap. I bought the intermission slash census taker one, and they have sort of the kind of classic Residence albums available. So check that out. There's also Bomba. Hmm? Uh, I was just going to say, I'm kind of surprised a lot of collectors kind of ignore a lot of the Japanese releases. The, they're, they're pretty cool. They're, they're very good. Um, and just also, like, I don't know, I feel like record collectors really love the, the OB, which is that little paper thing that covers the side of the record or the CD. Um, I don't really know the purpose of it, but it looks cool. And Japanese releases have that. Um, it, it's the, it's kind of like the the hype stickers on the shrink wrap, except you don't have it, to turn it them is. off. Yeah, and then yeah. Um. Uh. Then there's a uh, Bomba Records, which just also puts out uh, resident CDs. I don't really know. Um, kind of specifics, but they usually just put out sort of regular releases, jewel case, or like really just. Uh, jewel case CD releases. Um, I, I think one, one thing that the, sorry about this. I think I think one of the ones they did was Animal Lover, and from what I've seen, a lot of the collectors usually get that too. Yeah, like I, I feel like Bomba is a bit more of a actually known name for record collectors because they actually did like I think Cryptic or the Residents had like some sort of actual more serious deal with Bomba because Bomba put out like a lot of releases first um, um do you want to talk about how the residents almost went and played Talking Light in Japan so um the residents played in Japan um in the 1980s and then they never really went back to Japan for any of the, for the uh, other tours no QB no Wormwood no Nothing of the sort. Definitely no Bunny Boy. Um, but there were plans to maybe take the Talking Light show to Japan in 2011. I mean, I assume that was the tour they were doing in 2011 um, for a small little Japanese part of the tour. But unfortunately, um, in 2011, that was when the um, Tohoku earthquake happened um that was big news there's the tsunami there's that fukushima stuff going down so that was sort of put on hold and the residents would have to go to japan another day and that other day happened to be in 2017 for the world premiere of their in between dreams tour 
Um, Japanese copies of The Ghost of Hope were also for sale early um, during this show, so I guess The Ghost of Hope also had its world premiere in Japan. Um, and there were a variety of promotional events in Japan during 2017 as well. There was, uh... There were also, uh, uh during 2017, as a sort of lead-up, and also after the, the In Between Dream shows, there were other promotional events. Um, there was an event called Medama no Gakko, which was just, um, a sort of little, it was like a workshop almost, um, the Japanese In Between Dreams set list was a lot more based on the Randy, Chuck, and Bob trilogy shows, perhaps due to the fact that Japan missed those shows and the residents wanted to uh, allow that audience to experience them when they wouldn't have been able to otherwise. And some of these songs stayed on the set list for the U.S. and European tours, but some of them didn't, um, such as God's Magic Finger and Loser is Congruent to Weed, which, now that we know the instrumentation of In Between Dreams, I would like to hear those. So, residents, if you're <sighs> willing to hit us up. Um, also, those Japanese shows eventually did get little tidbits of official video released, from Tyrone's um, snap spectacles, those Snapchat goggles, um, and that's about it. Uh, the segment they added for those uh, for the American shows was the Nixon sings the blues one, which was sort of to tie into the Dying Dog songs that they added for those tours. They did uh, though. They, they did play "Die Die Die" in the Japan show. They, they did, which... I wonder if it's just also... because Nixon jokes really don't carry with the Japanese audience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who is this no long-nosed? Alongside the, 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 the show, the, the... Also during 2017, uh, around the time of those in-between dream shows to promote um, those concerts, we had some just interesting promotional events. There was... Medama no Gakko, which is, it translates to, like, the school of, of eyes, of eyeballs, because it's the residence, um, and that was a, just a little, like, it's almost like a workshop, um, it was hosted by, um, a man named Manabu Iwasa, who, uh, has worked with the residents a lot in sort of bringing their stuff over to Japan. Um, and essentially, he talked about the history of the residents. Um, he, uh, which, by the way, who would want to listen to someone talk about the history of the residents? <laughs> who cares, you know? Freaking stupid. Um, he uh, showed, like, footage, and he, weirdly enough, there's, like, a uh, weird, like, music production um, element to the entire event. Like, they were sort of playing around with, like, weird ways of making music, I guess. Um, which, I guess, makes sense. Um, related to that, there's also a, a live stream with a... Uh, that they did. That was basically a... Uh, uh, cut-down version of Madama no Gakko. That was uh, a stream with Domune, um, which was just, it's like this club where they stream stuff at. It's its weird. I know. Um, but, it's uh, weird. That was 
pretty cool too. Uh, you got to see the entire Resonance collection, and we might link that stream in the uh, in the show notes because it's very cool. And also, uh, I was in the studio audience when that was being recorded. <laughs> Um, so that was fun. Um, and then also throughout 2017, there's um, the localization of Theory of Obscurity, which had a lot of merch that I really wanted um, and couldn't get. <laughs> I want the clear file. But uh, they, they had like all this, they had a Resonance Gachapon, I want. There's an interesting thing that I noticed, actually. I um, was wearing that Theory of Obscurity shirt um, when I was, um, when, I, when I met Mama Ralph, and um, she noted that she actually had never seen that shirt. So the Japanese Theory of Obscurity crew essentially operated totally separately from the US crew. And something about that is just very funny to me. Yeah, um, by the way, the the localized title was called Madamadon. What does that mean? It's like Theory of Eyeballs or something like that. Um, not as cool as Theory of Obscurity, but gotta mark it, gotta mark it, gotta put in the eyeballs. Um, yeah. My so maybe we're not so like, different What's after that all. What's you wanted to watch, me to watch, wanted me to watch? Theory of Obscurity? And I was like, yes. Oh, there's a, watch there's it. a, uh, there's a uh, a interview with Wave where they're actually interviewing Homer Flynn, speaking for the residents, and also the residents are there goofing off. Um, and like they they have trouble uh, translating theory of obscurity, and they they ask him about the strategy of obscurity. Um, so I think they're just like, yeah, maybe we should just remove the the obscurity part and just mention the eyeballs instead seems like a good plan so i guess that pretty much wraps up our 13th anniversary discussions any extra thoughts the residents are good thank you japan for the residents (laughs) really thank you thank you wave records for for saving the residents because like if 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 they didn't just throw money at them to to do the 13th anniversary show like i don't know if the residents they probably could have just slowly rose back up to financial success from just staying in the studio but like the fact that they were able to just immediately go on tour very successfully kind of saved them even though wave themselves did not survive I was just gonna add really quick that uh, it's it's not exactly from the 13th anniversary, but uh, I think they noted on their site that uh, Man's World, which was made around the same time as the 13th anniversary, if I'm not mistaken, uh, that was the closest to mainstream success that they had ever gotten. It's the closest to mainstream music they've ever made, at least up to that point. The 13th anniversary version of Man's World and the in-between dreams version of Man's World sound very similar. Obviously, there are differences, but like 
I like to think that the in-between dreams version was inspired by the 13th anniversary person version. Seem that Iki's guitar play playing seems to sound a whole lot like Snake Fingers in that it seems like it probably is an homage and it works exceptionally well. Live from Muse Bedroom, this is Muse News. Winner of the 2019 award for best residence related podcast segment, one year running. Now, our hostess and anchor, Mew. Uh, welcome to Muse News to uh, use, if, if you choose. So, uh, here's the news. Uh, somebody's broken out of satellite too. Um, uh, oh, right, the residents, the residents. So, um, in continuation of the last episode's news segment, Psychophon Records did release the uh, Dying Dog Alvin Snow uh, box set release. Um, if you were in suspense for this whole time, I was able to get my copy of the Black Edition. It is very cool. Um, there are still some copies up, I think, so not of the Black one, um, but of the Albino release. So if, you're, uh, if you've got money and you want to spend it on random stuff, that's cool. Maybe do that or save your money because there's a bunch of other stuff in this new segment. You can also spend your, your hard-earned quankaroonies on. Um, but speaking of Dying Dog, the new Residence album has been sort of more formally announced, uh, which has to do with that release um, by, of the Alvin Snow Records, demo records. Um, the new Residence uh, album, Metal Meat and Bone, the songs of Dying Dog, um, will be sort of the Residence own cover versions um, of those um, original demos that will be releasing in February 2020. The Residents and the Cryptic Corporation produced a, a cool little documentary about about the life of Alvin Snow. So maybe check that out. We'll link it in the uh, in the show notes for you to, to watch if you haven't watched it already, which you should have, but in case you haven't, because it's kind of long. You know, pop some popcorn, grab a cold beer, Watch that eight-minute YouTube video. Oh, it'll, it'll be it'll be some fun. All right, here's the news, folks. It is a uh, crowdfunding season once again in uh, the residents' world. Um, every couple of years, it seems now, the residents they launch a new crowdfunding campaign. A couple years back, it was I'm a resident. A couple years before that, it was the Theory of Obscurity um, Indiegogo campaign. I'm sure if it had existed back then, there would have been a Bunny Boy crowdfunding campaign. Um, that's my take on that situation. Um, but uh, we've got, we have a new one now, and it's for a exciting future performance. God in Three Persons live in New York. New York City. So uh, if you're free, you know, on January 24th or 25th of 2020, maybe uh, start looking up some some flights to uh, to the Big Apple City in New Amsterdam and just have a family-friendly time watching Gone Three Persons live. But you can contribute to the little Indiegogo campaign to sort of help fund whatever they need to do. Uh, they have a little video explaining all the crazy stuff they're going to do. So uh, you can contribute. Um, back in the... Uh, in the I'm a resident crowdfunding campaign, one of the um, one of the backing um, rewards was a uh, a clothing set which featured residents branded socks 
Um, and I didn't contribute to that campaign, and not getting those socks is um, my life's biggest regret so far. But if you're like me, you can undo this by contributing to the Gone Three Persons Indiegogo campaign right now. Picking up, you know, the new resident socks that they include in this campaign. You, there's also a bunch of other cool stuff. There's shot glasses, because I guess if you want a double shot of whatever, you, you can do that. Um, there's um, some other um, rewards if you're, you know, a one percenter or something. And you can get props um, or an executive producer credit or uh, you could have gotten a Santa dog, but that sold out, so you can't get it anymore. But hey, maybe there'll be new stuff. Um, that'll be running for about another month, so you still have a lot of time to contribute, to, to scrounge up some Quankaroonies uh, this month. You know, give the residents a few a few buckaroonies and and hey, you know, get a poster or a CD or something. Help the residents achieve their dreams. But we're not done yet, folks. Uh, buried under all this uh, gotten free persons Indiegogo stuff um, is a brand new uh, work by the artist you should know him, Stephen Serio. Oh, Disfigured Knight. Ooh. Fantastic. But, uh, Steven Serio, he's putting out a new comic book all about the Resonance. It's called Fresh Hell and Fits, a falsified history of the Resonance. I've been told it's 100% true. Um, there will only be 333 copies of this, uh, according to, you know, the news. Um, so pick that up. 33 of those copies are special collector's editions, so... Um, if you're a super collector, there's only 33 collector's editions. Um, they might be sold out already. I did not check, and I'm not going to. That's a surprise for you folks. But otherwise, if you just want the normal one, if you just want a cool comic book to read, there are 300 normal ones for free to pick up, if you so choose to do so. And finally, um, we have a, well, we've had a date for not available preserved edition for quite a while now. Um, that's coming out in a few days, so if you haven't pre-ordered it yet, maybe maybe you should do so, or uh, get ready to pick it up in your local record store if they sell resident CDs like mine does. Um, that's coming out November 8th, though, so, you know, pre-order it, get ready to buy it, whatever you do, um, but as, as I've said before, it must never be listened to, so, you know, I'm going to bury mine in, in my backyard and never listen to it. Um, you know, I think, I think Ensenada would be proud. And, uh, that's gonna do it for this edition of Muse News. Uh, thank you for tuning in. I don't know if this is gonna be a recurring segment or not, but, uh, that's it for this episode. And I think with that, that wraps us up. So, it's time for our comment from a residence video. Live from the basement four years ago says... OMG, it sounds like he's crying. How does he do that? Vibes Pack, three years ago, said, By crying? Live from the basement, three years ago, says, Now that I think about it, you're probably right. So be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Google Play Music and all that other newfangled technology. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, Facebook. Email us if you feel so inclined. And thanks to the Crypto Corporation and the residents and Sparky.
And Hein. Love you, Sparky. And, and Love you, Hein. And Japan. Love you, Wonder This Boy. one goes out to Japan. Yes. And Shout out to Japan. <laughs>